we are on part nine. So uh, what we're going to learn today. So uh, we're going to talk about the actual fall. So uh, last week we had kind of the setup, the temptation of Eve, and we're going to talk about, well, what happened next? Uh, the, the really bad news of the actual fall. Uh, we're going to talk about the fact that they were now naked and ashamed. Before they were naked and ashamed, now they're naked and ashamed. And then we're going to talk about the blame game. God's going to hold court, and uh, Adam and Eve are going to blame everybody but themselves for their sin. Uh, but first, let's do a little review of where we were last week. And so last week we did the first five verses of Genesis chapter 3, the setup to the actual fall. And so the passage of Scripture we looked at was... Uh, this Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So that was last time. And so Genesis 3, uh, this chapter that we're in, it's vitally important, um, and also it's very tragic, as we'll see today and next week as well. It's the foundation for everything that comes after. And so without it, without this foundation of Genesis chapter 3, it's really impossible to understand the rest of Scripture. It explains the condition of the universe and the state of humanity. It explains the world, why we have so many problems, why at the end of Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1.31, God said everything is very good, but that's not what we see. When we look out today at the world, everything is not very good. Uh, there's many awful and, and terrible things that we see. Why is that? Well, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, it explains the need for a Savior, um, vitally important. Uh, if you're giving the gospel to somebody, to a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member who needs salvation in Christ, one of the first things that you have to do is explain, well, why do they need salvation in the first place? Well, the, found, the, the foundation for the explanation is here in Genesis chapter 3. And so it's necessary to have an accurate view of the world the way it is to have an understanding of what happened here in Genesis chapter 3. So it's the foundation for a true worldview. Um, so the New Testament looks back to this event uh, in a number of different places, and we'll talk about this more as we go along uh, next week as well, uh, this week and next week, that, uh, for example, in Romans chapter 5, when, when uh, Paul is explaining salvation, he starts with the bad news, and then he starts, then he comes to a place in Romans chapter 5 where he's comparing and contrasting uh, Adam and Jesus. And he says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. And so uh, this is the doctrine of original sin, the fact that we all are born with a sin nature from Adam forward, even before the formal law was written down by Moses. Um, and then in 1 Corinthians 15, but now Christ has been raised from the dead and the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, 
so also in Christ all will be made alive. So in Adam all sin and die, in Christ all can be made alive. Um, And so we also did a little side uh, detour about the fall of Satan. Um, We have the appearance, of course, in uh, verse 1 of this uh, crafty talking serpent. And so where in the world did he come from? Uh, We can see uh, from other parts of Scripture that it was definitely Satan there, uh, masquerading as an animal or possessing an animal. Um, And so there is somewhere has to be a fall of Satan, because in Genesis 131 everything was very good. Sometime after that, we have this uh, we have Satan t- deliberately tempting Eve, and so his fall had to occur sometime between the end of creation and the events described here at the beginning of Genesis three. Um, and so, I also put this quote from Calvin up last time. It's a little bit frustrating. Um, I was having a conversation right before we started that uh, the Bible doesn't tell us when angels were created, for example. Um, those six days of creation talk about all kinds of stuff that was created, but there's no specific mention of, well, exactly when and how were the angels created, and then how, how and when did Satan fall. Um, so it's uh, frustratingly vague um, in that part of Scripture, and um, Calvin, he's, he's got a little bit of a sense of humor, Some persons grumble that Scripture does not in numerous passages sets forth systematically and clearly that fall of the devils, its cause, manner, time, and character. But because this has nothing to do with us, it's better not to say anything, or at least touch lightly, because it did not befit the Holy Spirit to feed our curiosity with empty histories to no effect. So that's what John Calvin says about all of my questions about, hey, when were the angels, you know, when did Satan... Uh, I think at the end of the day... The Holy Spirit has not seen fit to tell us exactly when and how angels created, exactly when and how Satan fell, and that can be uh, a little bit frustrating uh, because we have this natural curiosity and the Holy Spirit has chosen not to satisfy that uh, natural curiosity. So you can ask when you get to heaven. So... Um, this tempting of Eve in, in, uh, uh, the, in, gen- in a general way, uh, we notice that Satan attacks Eve first, rather than Adam, who was the one that heard the command directly from God. Uh, Satan uses a strategy of twisting the truth, of lying by twisting the truth, having a little kernel of truth, twisting it. Um, and he uses the same thing, the same kind of pattern today. Second um, Corinthians 11 says he disguises himself as an angel of light. And so he, he questions God's word, twists God's word, and then directly contradicts God's word. That's his pattern there. At the end, he says, you shall not surely die, which is a direct contradiction. God said, you'll die. Satan says, no, you won't die. God's wrong. Uh, so he's, his strategy is to portray God as narrow and strict and uncharitable, restrictive, um, that he wants to limit human freedom, and here comes Satan to, to open, expand your mind and open up your freedom and give you what God is denying you. So he insinuates that he is more devoted to Eve's well-being than God is. God's kind to keep this from you, but no, you, I'm, I'm telling you that, that you won't die and you can do this other thing that God says not to do. And so he's portraying God as narrow, as I said, uh, he does the same kind of lie today in today's world as he did 
6,000 years ago in the garden. He says, you can be free, do whatever you want. It's your life. There's no divine law. And most importantly, there's no judgment. You will not surely die. Um, You're not accountable for what you do. Um, So, um, at this point, uh, Eve is faced with a clear choice. So that's where we left it last time. She'd been tempted. She's faced with this clear choice. She could either believe God, what God said, or she could believe what Satan said. Um, And, of course, the same choice confronts humanity um, all the way to this day. Um, And so we get to today to, well, what did Eve do with this temptation? So uh, back to the garden. So today we're going to talk about the actual fall. So the events so far lead up to the fall. We're going to talk about the actual fall. And then we're going to see this uh, little funny contrast to the end of chapter 2 and now in chapter 3. So at the very end of chapter 2, one or chapter two it says they were the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed now we'll see that they're naked and they're definitely ashamed uh, and then we'll talk about the blame game uh, god's going to hold court and adam and eve are going to blame everybody else for their sin so this is the passage of scripture we want to discuss today so we're going to dive into genesis 6 uh, 3 6 through 13 Genesis chapter 3, 6 through 13. So if you can have your Bible or your device open to Genesis chapter 3, we'll be referring back to this uh, over and over again during the class. So um, so Eve's just been tempted by Satan, and this is what she does. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So that's the passage we want to look at. uh, The most tragic passage of Scripture uh, anywhere. Um, This is the fall, the actual fall, uh, where they, Adam and Eve actively disobeyed God. So, as an overview, the stuff that we're going to get into in detail here in a minute, um, Eve saw three... Features of the fruit that seduced her, good for food, lust of the eyes, delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, uh, lust of the flesh, I'm sorry, delight of the eyes, lust of the eyes, desirable to make one wise, boastful pride of life, and that's exactly as scripture describes all sin in 1 John chapter 2, and so we'll get into the details of that here in a minute. Both Eve and Adam, then Adam disobeyed God and ate the fruit that he told him not to eat. Uh, It's ironic and sad that the one whom God had given to Adam to be his helper became the instrument of disaster and death. 
Uh, as Satan well knew, sin always twists God's perfect design. So God's perfect design was for Eve to be the helper for, for Adam. And Satan gets in there and twists that perfect design. Um, uses her as an instrument to get to Adam. Uh, but Adam's guilt was greater, uh, not less than Eve's. And throughout Scripture, Adam is the one who is indicted for the fall. We see that in Romans chapter 5, which I read in First uh, Corinthians 15, uh, that we did last time, First uh, Timothy 2 as well. It's very clear that it's Adam who is held responsible for this event. As the head of the human race, Adam bore the ultimate responsibility for the fall. Once they have sinned, Adam and Eve feel guilt and shame for the first time. Uh, Their eyes were opened only in a negative sense. Uh, Tragically, their relationship with God is broken, and sadly, they try to hide from him. Uh, In verses 9 to 13, God holds court. Uh, He seems to be giving them every opportunity to confess and repent. He starts with Adam, and instead of repenting, he blames everyone else present. Uh, The woman whom you gave to be with me. So the first sin brings the first blame game. Then God turns to Eve, and it's not her fault either. The serpent deceived me. Uh, Then beginning in 3.14, which we'll get into next time, God turns to the serpent. He doesn't ask any more questions. He simply passes judgment and announces punishments. And and that's what we'll get into uh, next time. So that's a broad overview. And so we want to get into some details here. And so I mentioned 1 John chapter 2. And so 1 John chapter 2 is uh, the Apostle John, and he's talking about the nature of sin, the nature of the world uh, that we find ourselves in. We're in the world, but not of it. And John says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So there's a, uh, it's black and white. You're either, you either love the world or you love the Father. You can't do both. Uh, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So that is uh, the nature of sin. Um, And and then in James chapter 1, we have what's the nature of temptation, And uh, James tells us, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Uh, Just a word about this word lust. It's... um, Often in colloquial expression, we talk about only in the uh, in the sexual arena. But lust is more broad; it's desiring something, uh, uh, strongly desiring something, and it can be anything. Um, and so, this is very. This is in this passage. It's definitely not just talking about uh, sexual lust. It's talking about broadly all kinds of strongly desiring something. Uh, and then, so that's the pattern. Um, it's our own lust that, that cause us to, uh, to crave something. We're carried away by our own lust, enticed by our own lust that conceives and brings forth sin, and sin accomp- accomplishes death. So as we look at this passage, uh, starting with verse 6, so the woman, she goes through this same progression of thoughts 
as John is talking about in 1 John. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And so there's the elements there. Um, and notice in 1 John 2, it says, this is not from the Father, this is from the world. Uh, Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. All three elements um, that the Bible talks about in this process of temptation and sin was present here in the garden. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Uh, Eve had already decided to disobey God in her heart as she looked at the tree. And then she acted. She took the fruit and ate. So the process started in the mind. Uh, she, she went through this process. Satan, uh, Satan had put the temptation there. Uh, then it, her own uh, uh, desires took over. She, uh, she went through this mental process of saying, Aha! God has said not to eat that fruit, but the tree's good for food. God has said not to eat that fruit, but, hey, it's delightful to the eye. It looks great. God has said not to eat that fruit, but, hey, Satan says it'll make me wise. It'll open my eyes. I'll know good and evil. Um, All those things go through Eve's mind before she reaches up her hand and and takes the fruit. Uh, But that's what it leads to. It leads to an action. She took the fruit and ate. So what happened, uh, let's contrast that. Let's compare to what happened to Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 4, we have a a story about Jesus being tempted by Satan. He was tempted by Satan. This exact same Satan comes and tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And so Matthew chapter 4, if you want to turn to that, says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. I will say, that's uh, 40 days and 40 nights, I bet he was hungry. And the tempter and say, came, uh, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. And so Jesus is tempted. Eve is tempted, Genesis chapter 3. Jesus is tempted by this same Satan in Matthew chapter 4. How did Jesus successfully resist the temptation of the devil while Eve failed? 
Ephesians 6, 17 tells us, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so this is the passage about the armor of God. And at the end of that passage, we have, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And that's what Jesus did. The first temptation was the lust of the flesh in uh, verses 3 and 4. He's very hungry. After 40 days of fasting, the devil tempts him with food to convert the stones into bread. He replies with scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8. The second temptation is the pride of life. Matthew, in verses 5 to 7, the devil uses a, actually uses a verse of scripture. He quotes scripture to Jesus from Psalm 91. Uh, but Jesus replies with scripture to the contrary, Deuteronomy chapter 6, that it's wrong for him to abuse his own power. The third temptation concerns the lust of the eyes, and the devil had control over the kingdoms of the world, Ephesians 2 2, but was now ready to give everything to Christ in return for his allegiance. And Jesus replies sharply, he tells him to go, he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so Jesus was able to repulse the temptations of the devil with the sword of the scripture. In particular, he quoted three different passages of Deuteronomy. Um, and so when you're doing your Bible reading plan and you get to Deuteronomy, don't stop. It's very effective. Uh, Deuteronomy can be used to fight off the devil as Jesus showed in Matthew chapter 4. So, um, this is important. Um, this is an important passage. All scripture is important, of course. Uh, but this comparison and contrast of Adam and Eve, we'll see Adam here in a second. Uh, Adam and Eve could not resist the temptation of the devil. Jesus did. And in Hebrews chapter 4, we get kind of a, an explanation of why, uh, one of the reasons why that's so important. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So why is it that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence? Why is it that we can go to God in prayer, God the Father in prayer? Um, why is that? It's because Jesus has been tempted in every way as we are. We have such a great high priest that we can come to the throne of grace with confidence. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. So Jesus um, was alive for 30 years or so. Um, he had three years of earthly ministry, but he was alive for 30 years. And so, yes, he was tempted, like we are tempted, um, for 30 years, and yet without sin. Uh, so that's a good point, yes. This is the, the famous example of you know, a specific instance where he was, where he was uh, tempted by Satan, but this is not the only time Jesus was tempted during his life. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, so he came back again. Yeah, yeah and so uh, you, know, you, can make, you can imagine, that they're not, it's not very specific, but uh, in the garden, Jesus was obviously in agony. Um, and he was begging uh, the Lord, of, he was begging his father essentially to take this cup from me. Uh, he had to be tempted at that point to call the whole thing off. Um, he had to be tempted, but he, he went through. Yeah. <clears throat> I know why we sin, because we have that sinful nature, but I can't, I'm still trying to figure out why did Adam and Eve sin if they did not have the sinful nature? So um, they had a choice. So uh, this is the uh, 
you know, this is the idea of the question behind the question is why did God um, that comes up sometimes is well, why did God put them in that situation to begin with? Why was there a tree that they couldn't eat in the garden? Why did why did God do that? Right? Why did He do that? Uh, we're going to talk. I plan to talk about that next week, but we can talk about it a little bit now. Uh, why did God do that? Uh, put that tree in there. Why did He let Satan into the garden? Um, so we see in the book of Job that Satan has to ask permission to uh, to go after Job. So uh, God had to give Satan permission to tempt Eve, right? God is sovereign. He he, he the, the tempting of Eve takes place within God's sovereign will, like everything else takes place within God's sovereign will. So why did he do that? So the easy answer is for his glory. He does everything for his glory. Um, and so it's the result at the end is God's glory. Uh, but how does that work? Um, so he, uh, the, the, the goal here, the immediate goal, is that um, Adam and Eve have a relationship, a mutual relationship with God, um, a, a, an opportunity to experience being loved and loving God. Um, and so um, we learn later in Scripture in many passages that um, the, the definition of love for God is obedience. Uh, for example, we, there's a passage of Scripture in, uh, I think it's in the book of John, uh, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. 1450, okay. Um, and so, and that's not the only passage that equates, directly equates obedience with love for God. And so, if Adam and Eve are going to have an opportunity to demonstrate love for God, what do they need to do? They need to obey. Obedience is what equals love for God. So what does the word obey mean? Obedience requires an actual choice to obey or not to obey if there's no actual choice then there's no obedience that word is meaningless without an actual choice and so in order to give adam and eve an opportunity to demonstrate love to god he had to set up an actual choice to obey or not to obey and he did so he did and so they disobeyed which was by the way no surprise to god Right, this this whole everything that's happening here in Genesis three, um, there's no uh, God. We'll see when, what God's reaction is, but God's reaction is not a reaction of surprise. Oh my goodness, I didn't had no idea they were going to disobey that. Commandment. No, that's not. God knew what was going to happen. He already already had the plan in place to redeem mankind. So the whole process is part of His plan, including the fall, part of His plan. Um, and at the end, we have the new heavens and the new earth, we have a place where there is uh, obedience to God, in, in perfect obedience to God, and there is no sin, there's no death, there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's no disease, there's no pain, there's no suffering. That's where we get to at the end, and this whole process is necessary to get to that end. And so when we look at things that God has done, and we have some confusion about why he has done what he's done, always remember that God has 
a reason for what he does. He has a morally sufficient reason for allowing things that to us look wrong or evil or, or something's not going right. Um, and we take that by faith, but it's not a blind faith. It's a faith that is um, nurtured and built on a foundation of God's faithfulness and trustworthiness that's demonstrated over and over and over again through Scripture. And so um, the best example of a, a total disaster that turned out wonderfully is the cross. And so Jesus' death on the cross is the greatest injustice that's ever happened in the history of creation. The death of a perfect, sinless Son of God on the cross, the murder. Uh, that was terrible. That's the greatest evil, greatest injustice that's ever happened. And how did that turn out for us? That turned out pretty good for us. Um, so if we have that example, then we can trust that God has um, a good and perfect plan for everything that he allows that looks to us bad, like having a tree that they could eat from that uh, uh, results in, in death, sin and death, or allowing Satan to tempt Eve, for example. But, and, and then all the examples in our own lives of things that happen which uh, we don't we don't want we don't uh, it's there you know our, any any kind of sickness that comes into our lives loss of job all those sort of things those things have come into our lives as followers of Christ uh, that are part of God's perfect plan for my life no matter what it looks like okay so yes yeah, so there was this idea that um, that God put that tree there he knew they were going to fall but that it was necessary for his glory, um, for us to be part of this relationship with him and his glory, that was necessary. All right, so, and we'll, we're, we're actually going to talk more about that. So this is, that's not the last time we'll visit this topic. Uh, when we get to uh, the punishments next week and the expulsion from the garden, uh, we're going to talk about, we're going to bring this up again because it's an important topic. Why is it? Uh, and you may get this. I've gotten this question from unbelievers before. Why, why did God put that tree in the, in the garden? Why, why did he make a tree that they weren't allowed to eat? If he had just not made that tree, wouldn't everybody still be sinless? And, but, uh, but you may get a question like, well, then why did he make man in the first place? Um, was it, yeah, so why, why, did he, why did he make man? And so uh, the, question, the answer to that one, of course, is for his glory also. But how did that work? How does that work? And, and that works out from Genesis to Revelation with the whole plan of redemption and the new heavens and the new earth and us in fellowship with God. He created us to be in fellowship with him. Um, and the whole process is necessary from the tree in the garden to the fall to uh, the entire plan of redemption in Christ that's first uh, prophesied in Genesis 3.15, which we'll see next week, uh, all the way up to Christ's death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and all the events that are happening between now and those described in the book of Revelation. In, and it culminates in the new heaven and the new earth, where there is no more sin, there's no more death, suffering, pain, guilt, disease, shame, all those things are done away with and we're in perfect fellowship with God. Uh, to get there, all this other stuff is necessary. Pastor Gabe. So 
all, all that is good and helpful, but I, I still think your question isn't answered yet, which is why would he do something? Right. What's the difference between you guys Eve and me? Yeah. So here's my best attempt at an answer to that. Um, and that is that uh, because Eve uh, had a relationship with God and Adam, of course, they knew God, they walked with God, talked with God. Uh, in order for her to choose something other than God, she had to be deceived into thinking that something other than God was better. What we find desirable, that the, the nature of desire is a combination of what we believe is true and good and right and beautiful, what we value, what we think is important. You, you kind of put all those things in a soup of the soul and, and outcome what we find delightful and enjoyable and, and desirable. And so uh, up until Satan spoke to Eve, she only saw God and God's will as desirable. But he planted in her mind seeds of it being like God is a good thing. Uh, and she looked at the fruit in a new light to say, oh, that looks tasty. She never thought about that before. So thoughts were, were put into her mind that made her, uh, that produced different desires uh, because she was having different thoughts. And uh, so that's why it had to be a deception because her thinking had to be changed, uh, and of course, it, it couldn't be changed based on the truth, it had to be changed based on lies. So she believed lies, and that produced desires, and those desires resulted in action. That's the James 1 uh, process of temptation. So she, it's all based on deception, that, that she just believed things that weren't true. That's my best answer. No, that, that's great. <laughs> and so uh, so the, the, the heart of the point is that we we're fallen and slaves to sin. Eve at that point was not fallen and a slave to sin, but she was deceived. Um, she was capable of being deceived, but yeah. Okay. No, it's, it's no, it's it's. I think it's important to struggle with things like this to 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 be in prayer and to be studying the Word and um, and to. It's okay to have questions like this. I think. Uh, to, to think through it in your mind. Um, yeah, go ahead. Um, this story also kind of makes concrete um, the idea of, of God's sovereignty in relationship to where sin is. Because in the abstract, you know, you lay a few premises together and you go, that doesn't make any sense. Because you say, well, God's will controls everything. Soup to nuts. It all is controlled by God's will. He's got a will that's been set up, and and but he he doesn't cause sin. And you're like, wait, those two things don't go together. <laughs> but when you when you see it concrete like this, you see God made it all. He made it all very good. And he's like, I made it all very good. And and you don't have this one choice. You you know, here's your choice to obey. Yeah. And with the temptation that comes in, you realize, okay, well. Even if God set all this stuff up, put all these things in place, and put the potential there, it's not God who does the temple. Right. And it's not God who causes evil. And in the concrete, it's easier to see than it is in the abstract. I think. 
Yeah, I think that's right, to, to see a very specific example of how that works here in Eve. Uh, and, of course, you may get the question as well, which I've gotten as well, well, why did God create Satan with the capability of disobeying him? That's the other question that I've gotten in the past and that you may get. Why did he create Satan with the capability of disobeying him so that we could end up with this talking serpent in the, you know, if God had just made all the angels so they could only believe, only obey him, then we wouldn't be in this problem, right? Um, and so that's an, another example of the same thing as with Eve and with the, why did he put the tree there? Why, so why did he create Satan with the capability of defying him? And so, of course, we get no... Uh, direct explanation in scripture but and of course for in satan's case he doesn't have at least as far as we know uh somebody else to deceive him (laughs) so in Eve's case the discussion that we just went through and that gabe just explains very well um there's something there's somebody from the outside who's deceiving eve as far as we know, there's nothing like that with Satan. So you back that up another level, then you have Satan's fall. Did, was there somebody that tempted Satan? Not that, not that we have any indication of in Scripture. Um, yeah, so there's some mind twisters here that, that we think through. Uh, that's true. We'll get to Adam as well. And so there's no indication in Scripture that Adam was deceived in the same way that uh, Eve was deceived. Um, but, and yet he sinned. He disobeyed. Uh, but, uh, I mean, you can. there are speculations to be made. For example, uh, Adam sees Eve eat the fruit, and she doesn't drop over dead, right? She doesn't fall down dead uh, once she eats the fruit. And so does this plant the seed of doubt in, uh, in Adam's mind? There's no indication in Scripture of that, but who, who knows? Um, so let's let's continue. Oh, there's another question. I'm sorry. Well, I yes, go ahead. What part does sin nature play in temptation and falling into sin? But it's obvious that we don't need a sin nature in order to be tempted. Um, and then, so then, what's the difference between believers and unbelievers as far as? So we have the Holy Spirit to help us fight temptation. We're no longer slaves to sin. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> these are thoughts. Yeah. So yeah. So when we get to uh, salvation, and how does salvation work? So salvation is by grace through faith. And so uh, the book of Romans is really clear about this in that um, it's, there's, no, there's nothing that we can do to move towards God. So in, in a fallen state, all of us are born with a sin nature. The Bible describes us as slaves to sin. We have no ability to orient ourselves towards God. And so that's why we have the doctrine of election um, and the idea that God sovereignly chooses to move towards us uh, and to the regeneration of the Holy Spirit starts the whole process, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, uh, then you've, you uh, are justified by grace through faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross, um, and then you start a process of sanctification, becoming conformed to the likeness of Christ, and in that process... You are no longer slaves to sin, but you still have um, sin in you, and we still sin. First uh, John chapter one tells us if we say that we have no sin, we're we're a liar. The truth is not in us, and so we have sin still. We're a new creation. We're not slaves to sin. We have the Holy Spirit, uh, but we still 
sin, all the way to the death and glorification. And we're, uh, after our natural death, the, natu- the death of our natural bodies were, uh, were glorified, and uh, with Christ in heaven, we will have no presence of sin. So we're saved from the, um, the penalty for sin at justification. Uh, we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're uh, saved from the, uh, the presence of sin completely uh, when we're in heaven. But so there's a struggle that's described in, in Romans chapter 7. Uh, the very thing that I know that I want to do, I can't do. And um, yeah, so there's a struggle uh, still. But when, when it comes to this idea of um, uh, our nature, um, our, our fallen nature, we have no ability to orient towards God um, in our fallen state. It's an act of sovereign grace in God's election to, uh, to turn us, to regenerate us, uh, so that we can be saved. Okay, so let's go back to the narrative here in Genesis chapter 3. And so Eve has eaten the fruit. She gives the fruit to, uh, to Adam. So when Satan's tempting Eve, there's some questions arise. I got this from a, uh, one of the commentaries um, that I've been reading uh, where was Adam, and why had he not intervened to defend his wife up to this point? Some commentators think that Adam was not around under this scenario. Uh, some think that he was, some think that he wasn't. Um, under this scenario, only now, around the time of his moral collapse, does he arrive on the scene. Uh, there's a, a commentary called Expositions of Genesis, written in 1942 by Leupold. Um, and he says this, the fact... Uh, however, that the prepositional phrase with her, ima, uh, which we rendered as a clause, is first found at this point. Uh, so not before, but only at, this, at the end. Uh, suggests that at the outset when the temptation began, it was not with Eve, but had only joined her at this time. Here too, satanic ingenuity displays itself. Uh, to approach both while they were together would have found them in a position where they would mutually have supported one another. So uh, there's disagreement. Uh, I read a bunch of commentaries. Some said Adam must have been there the whole time. Others say no. The way the Hebrew is structured, where this with her only comes in at the very end, uh, demonstrates that he wasn't there earlier in the temptation. Um, I don't know. Um, although um, there are some problems with him being there the whole time, um, and some commentators describe that as, well, that would have been a sin of omission, uh, if he had been there and not said anything. And that would have been a sin before he fell. And so that's a problem. Uh, that's the, the, the ones that say he was not there, that's their uh, explanation. That if Adam was there and committed a sin of omission by not uh, stepping in to help Eve, then that would be a sin before the fall. Uh, that's the tact that's the that the people s- that say, no, he wasn't there until the very end, that's what they take. Uh, I don't know. Um, uh, I think it's uh, there's some good, uh, there were some good arguments on on both sides of that. Uh, and so the, he gives to her husband, and he eats. Uh, so he gave to her. Uh, he's obviously there now. Well, she's eating the fruit. He he gives her some. He gives she gives him some. Uh, it's unclear from the text, as I said, when exactly he joined Eve and whether he was nearby when she was conversing with the serpent. What is clear is that Adam sinned by disobeying God and eating the fruit. So Adam had been told not to eat the fruit, and he ate the fruit. So he sinned by disobeying God. 
Uh, as I mentioned before, there's a sad irony here that uh, God had given Eve to be a helper and that it, Satan twisted that. This, this perfect, uh, perfect structure that God had set up, this deception twists that and uses her to get to him. And Satan knew that that's exactly what he was doing. He was trying to twist God's words and twist God's uh, perfect design there to ruin it. Adam's guilt was greater, not less, than Eve's. That's, uh, that comes out very clearly from the rest of Scripture. We already read Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians uh, 15. 1 Timothy 2 says a similar thing uh, in a different, little bit different context about uh, women uh, speaking in, in church. Um, but the, the idea is the same, that uh, the, the, uh, the responsibility was Adam's and the, um, the, the, the guilt and the, um, um, and the blame for uh, or this original sin and the fact that we're all born with a sin nature is placed squarely on Adam. Uh, as the head of the human race, Adam bore the ultimate responsibility for the fall. Uh, and we're going to actually get into that a little bit more. I had thought about trying to talk more about this this week, but there's just not time. So we're going to do that next week. I know Doug has been waiting. Uh, he's held this question now for two weeks, but he's going to have to hold it for one more week. Uh, this idea of the f- uh, federal headship of Adam and what that means. Uh, we just won't have time to do it today. Um, and so what happens? What's the, what are the immediate consequences? Uh, so as I mentioned before, Adam and Eve didn't, didn't just drop dead. That's not what happened. So what does happen? What are the, the first consequences? The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So first, their eyes were open, just as the serpent said. The serpent said, hey, your eyes are going to be open, and lo and behold, the eyes are open. But the results were diametrically opposed to what Satan had led them to believe. Satan had led them to believe that this was going to be a great thing for them, to have their eyes open. And it was not that. And they knew it immediately that there was, this, was, that this wasn't a wonderful thing. Um, they had already known intellectually the difference between good and evil in that they had had a command from God not to eat this fruit. There was something they were supposed to do, something they were not supposed to do. Intellectually, they knew that. Um, so they knew that it was right to eat those trees and wrong to eat that tree. They had, that, that had been um, clear to them intellectually. They had been told that. that. One thing was the thing you could do, another thing was the thing that you couldn't do. However, when they chose to disobey, they knew evil experientially because they themselves had sinned against God. Uh, this is the idea that it moves from, um, from the theoretical to the concrete now. And they see what it really means to experience evil. At that point, they fully understood both right and wrong. Uh, it was enough for humans to understand and experience the good as God had designed it. Uh, he had given them, everything was very good. He had given them all this trees to eat, this wonderful garden to be in, a, um, a fellowship with him. Uh, but they wanted more. Uh, they wanted more knowledge and more experience. And that turned out to their own detriment. So the entry of sin into the world was a curse leading to a loss of fellowship with God and other judgments upon Adam and Eve, which we'll get to uh, next week. But the immediate consequence was this loss of fellowship with God. Knowing good and evil was not a positive thing for Adam and Eve, the the way that Satan had portrayed it. 
It served as the entry of sin into humanity, and now all people sin and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, total disaster. So um, the other thing that we see right away is uh, a, a contrast with what we had just seen. So Genesis 2.25 is the last verse of Genesis chapter 2. And so then the very next verse is the serpent coming uh, and tempting Eve. So in 2.25, uh, it ends that chapter with the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Um, and now that they have sinned, they are still naked, just like they were before, but they are ashamed. And they immediately try to cover their nakedness. Um, and in fact, there's actually a different Hebrew word. Um, in 2.25, there's one Hebrew word for naked. And in 3.7, there's a different word for naked. Um, it, uh, I read a lot of commentaries, and none of the commentaries explained to me, anyway, what the difference, is there a difference in meaning between these two words? I could not find a difference in meaning between the, the two words. But they, the, the Holy Spirit used a different word for naked in 2.25 and 3.7, uh, for whatever that's worth. There's also, <laughs> the only thing I could find about it is, there's a play on words. Um, the uh, the beginning of the um, the word for naked in 2:25 uh, that begins with an A. That first syllable is the the same first syllable that's used to describe Satan as crafty and deceptive. Uh, so there's a Hebrew wordplay um, for the first sound. And the end of two twenty five, and the first sound at the end at the beginning of three one. Yes. In the reading about that nakedness part, does any of those commentaries take to Hebrews four, where it talks about God's word is able to essentially lay us bare? Um, I did not see that, um, but you know, I, when I get to the study of Hebrews four, when we get there, maybe it'll refer back. But in the the study of Two and three, they don't leap forward to chapter four. Because it feels to me that whole idea of being laid open and bare before God's eyes in some ways seems tied to this. So, suddenly they know what they've done. It's the same kind of they're open and bare before God, and they're trying some way to hide that. Yeah, and there's uh, the, the the big um, the big idea that comes out is there's now shame. So there was no shame uh, before the fall. Sin brings with it not only death, but also things like guilt and shame. Uh, we'll see, of course, it brings disease and pain and suffering too, but, but guilt and shame are two things that sin brings with it that Adam and Eve didn't have before sin. They didn't have guilt and shame. Now they have guilt and shame. And guilt and shame are things that are ubiquitous in our world today. And the fact that we have a conscience, of course, is a, uh, a common grace that God gives. So in, in that sense, guilt is uh, a good thing. Uh, that If guilt can drive us to repentance, that, that aspect of it. But before sin, there was no guilt and shame. And, and so this passage is saying, as soon as there's sin in the world, it brings with it shame as well. And so they were naked before. They're still naked, exactly in the same circumstance. But now that they've sinned, there's shame that comes along. Um, yeah. Okay. 
So uh, then uh, we see this break in their relationship with God. So they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So up to this time, they had enjoyed perfect fellowship with God. In verse 8, we see that that has changed. They heard God coming, and they hid themselves. Well, good luck with that, hiding themselves from the Lord God. Um, so Adam and Eve could no longer bear to be in God's presence. And so they make a futile attempt to evade him. So this has never happened before. They haven't hidden from God before. Now they're hiding from God. Um, they, or at least they're making this futile attempt to hide from God. So, uh, so then God calls to them. Uh, Adam and Eve were trying to avoid God, but he did not avoid them. He sought them out and called to Adam, where are you? So was God seeking information here? Had God lost track of Adam? Uh, no, no. So obviously he's not seeking information here. Um, that's not his purpose. He's omniscient and omnipresent. So he knew exactly where Adam is. Um, and so there is some silliness. Uh, I, I, I read a posting on the internet this week. Uh, where a, a, a guy said, here's this omniscient God and he can't even find Adam. Ha, 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 the Christians are, are stupid. And, and you know, you'll, you'll get some, some, some things like that where this proves that, that God's not omniscient because he had to ask where Adam is. No, no, I mean, that's just, that's really dumb. Um, so what was his purpose, though? Why does he ask this question of Adam? Why ask a question of, at all? Uh, so really what we see here is God's giving Adam every opportunity to acknowledge his sin and to repent, to confess and repent. God's giving him an opportunity. Um, and of course Adam's answer is evasive. Um, he, he had been naked in God's presence before and never had to hide. So this idea that he was afraid because he was naked and hid himself, that's not a good explanation. <laughs> Right? He's, that's never happened before. And so God asks the logical follow-up question. Um, Adam had not taken advantage of his first opportunity, uh, so God directs a follow-up question. Who told you that you were naked? And then another question. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, is God seeking information here? <laughs> Does God, God has no idea what happened. Have you eaten from the tree? Does God not know? Of course he knows. God's omniscient. He knows. So what is the purpose of this question? Have you eaten from the tree? Once again, he's not seeking information. The point was to extract a confession and repentance for their own good, for Adam's own good. He's giving him every opportunity here to confess his sin and to repent. Um, and so we see the nature of God here. This is what God is uh, desiring for Adam. And he's giving him opportunities. Um, and, and so you see this pattern, of course, with your kids. Um, you, you, you know, little Junior, um, he's not supposed to eat the cookies. And you, you see little Junior, and he's got cookie crumbles falling off his lips. And you ask him, did you eat the cookies? No, no, the crumble cookie crumbles falling off the lips. Um, so, uh, and parents, of course, in that instance, are imitating the Lord God. 
with what he did with Adam. We're trying to give our children an opportunity to confess and repent. When we ask questions like that, with the cookie crumbles falling off the lips, we ask, did you eat the cookies? Um, Because we want them to confess and repent of their sin. God wanted Adam to confess and repent of his sin for Adam's own good, not for God to gather information. Okay, Uh, and so what happens next? And so this is the first sin, and so we get the first blame game. Um, The man says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So that's Adam's response. He stubbornly refuses to confess and repent. Instead, he casts blame on everyone else, literally everybody else there, everybody else in the whole universe there. He, he, he manages to blame except him. Uh, he casts blame on the woman, Eve. And, of course, that's really God's fault for giving him the woman in the first place. So it's, it's Eve's fault and it's God's fault um, that Adam sinned. Um, it's either her fault or God's fault, and it definitely is not Adam's fault. Right? Definitely can't it can't be can't be my fault. My sin can't be my fault. It's you know it's got to be him. It's got to be her. It's got to be something else. Um, that's Adam's. That's that's Adam's response is to blame others. And so this pattern, of course, we see. We can, I can see it in my own life. I can see it. Um, you can see it anywhere you look. When people are, even when people are caught red-handed in sin, it's somebody else's fault, not my fault. And we get that from our very first great-grandpa, Adam. Uh, we're following in his footsteps here in refusing to confess and repent sins. Always somebody else's fault, the blame game. Uh, Eve, of course, blames the serpent. Uh, So it's definitely not her fault either. Uh, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Not just I ate, I confess, um, and I repent. It's the serpent. So um, it's the same pattern. It's never never our fault when we sin. There's always a rationalization. There's always somebody else at fault. Uh, Yeah, I did it, but so-and-so did this to me, and that's why it's... Uh, I had to do it. Uh, and so we see that at the very first sin. First sin, first blame game. Um, so um, at this point, God has given them as many chances to repent as he intends. Uh, he's given Adam a chance and another chance, and and now he's done, giving them chances to repent. Uh, and so next week, that's where we'll pick up. We'll, we'll start with uh, the sad consequences of Adam and Eve's sin as God gets to the sentencing phase of his little courthouse here in the garden. Uh, Sentencing phase will come next. So uh, so what we talked about today is the actual fall, uh, the actual sin of Adam and Eve, uh, the fact that there were immediate consequences, naked and ashamed, um, and that with the first sin comes the first blame game, uh, the fact that, no, it's not really my fault, I may have... I may have done the wrong thing, but it's not really my fault because of him, because of her, because of you. Um, it's, it's not my fault. And we see that God, on the other hand, is, um, even when Adam's trying to hide from him, God is moving towards Adam and trying to give him an opportunity, every opportunity, to confess his sin and repent 
of his sin. Okay, any questions? We have seven minutes. Uh, yes, Ron. Not really a question, but maybe a comment or statement. The fact that Adam lived, you know, 900 plus years and the fellowship was broken, it'd be, it's not recorded, but it would be interesting how much of that fellowship was restored. You know, like, did Adam know how to make tools or fire? Or did God show him how to make tools or fire? Because yeah. we know that uh, God spoke to Cain, but... How much of that fellowship kind of continued on, but it's just not recorded as an interesting thought. Yeah, so it is an interesting thought. Was Adam saved? You know, will we see Adam in heaven? Um, you know, so the, the Bible doesn't really say uh, whether, um, you know, there's a, um, there, there's, in, in Hebrews 11, of course, there's the Faith Hall of Fame, and there's, so there's a lot of, um, there's, there's people that are listed of, as being people of faith in the New Testament, talking about Old Testament people. So people that we can have an idea of, but not everybody. Not everybody's listed in, um, in the New Testament as having faith. I mean, there's some interesting ones in there, like Lot, for example, listed as having, having faith in, in the book of Hebrews. That's one I wouldn't have expected just from reading the, the Old Testament account of Lot. Samson, uh, uh, Samson yeah, is another one. Uh, but yeah, so uh, yeah, so any... Unless they're specifically mentioned in the New Testament, we can't know for sure. And, and that brings us to another, uh, a, a larger point. Uh, how do we know anybody is saved? Uh, how, do you know, how do you know the people, the, the person that are sitting in the pews with you in the whole Bible church are saved? How do you know that? Have you ever thought about that? Um, and so uh, we're told to uh, preach the gospel to people. Uh, uh, give the, a reason for the hope that is in us. At the end of the day, of course, the results are up to God, uh, God's sovereign election of people. Uh, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit is what brings somebody to salvation. And we're told that by their fruits you will know them. And so we have external ways of looking at a person's life and saying, well, that's the, the fruits of the Spirit. We can see that in a person's life. Um, we can see the fruits of salvation in a person's life, but there's, um, it's not always possible for us to just look at a person and say, that person is saved, so I don't need to tell that person the gospel. Um, and so the, um, the, the safe way, of course, is just to preach the gospel to everybody. Um, and, um, and then you've, for sure, you've, uh, you've met your responsibility. Okay, um, another question, another question. So, yeah, it's interesting to think about where these people saved that we, we read about in the Old Testament. All right, let me close this in prayer.